Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Okay, this is a real special treat. Lavi Ajayi Jones is, I mean, I don't even think you need an introduction because the world knows your name and more importantly, knows your words. But for everyone listening, in case you've been under a rock for the past decade, <laughs> Lovey, she's at the intersection of comedy, media, professional troublemaking. She's a New York yes. Times bestselling author. She's a podcast host. She's a TED speaker with more than 5 million views on her talk. You are so a leader in so many different platforms. Your razor sharp commentary paired with your humor has led to this media empire. And just so everyone knows, for the past 17 years, Lovey has covered all things pop culture on her blog, Awesomely Lovey, which I am a huge fan of since day one. Her podcast called Professional Troublemaker, where she has amazing conversations with incredible people who have committed to living life loudly with courage and conviction. And of course, she's such a community builder. And this is what I love about you. She connects with her audience through her social network, Love Nation, which has over 14,000 members. And it's a go-to source for elevated conversations about all things buzzworthy and doing better at life in general. And it serves as a safe space in a dumpster fire world, which is really important. Her debut book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual, was released in 2016 with critical acclaim, became an instant New York Times bestseller, and her new book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual, drops March 2nd. Lovey, I mean, as if she's not doing enough in her own world, she's also one of the co-creators of Share the Mic Now, the global movement, and has received numerous accolades, including being chosen by Oprah Winfrey, no big deal, as part of her inaugural <laughs> Super Soul 100 list, as someone who elevates humanity. I mean, just amazing. My bio's too long. I just... <laughs> I mean, what would you cut out? Oprah? No, you're not cutting out anything. You deserve a long bio, my dear. Oh, my gosh. So let's take it back. You're born in Nigeria. You're bred in Chicago. You're comfortable everywhere yeah. and certainly on the internet. Yes, And indeed. I love this. You love laying around in your plush robe, eating a warm bowl of jollof rice in her free time. And your love language is shoes. Yes. Yes. Which means how many pairs do you have? Do you even know? You know, I have two closets. I have one shoe closet that takes up the whole wall of a room. And I have another shoe closet that's in my office that has all my favorite sneakers in it. 
I estimate that I probably have around 250 pairs. Wow. Yeah. And I give away 25 pairs a quarter. Well, you got to make room for the new the new recruits. Exactly. Exactly. Come on. So what was Little Lovey like in Nigeria? Little Lovey was very much like grown Lovey. <laughs> she was very outspoken. She did not like when people did something that she felt was not fair. And she would always let them know and got in trouble because of it. Uh, she loved to read, was a geek, a proud geek. I've been this person for a long time. So I'm not surprised, but I'm <laughs> curious, was that encouraged? Like, I would imagine that this was fostered in your home. It was. Like, I come from a family of professional troublemakers. Like, I come from people who were loud. We love to joke. And we literally, we are actually physically just loud. You'd be like, why is there so much noise and there's only seven people here. We just talk. We have outside voice inside, you know? So yeah, I was never told not to be this person. I was never told that being me wasn't cool by my parents, by the people around me when I was little. And I think that was such a gift. It is such a gift. And for sure, like no one should be told that, but I think it has a lot to do with the person you are today. And that's why I always like to talk about, you know, where people come from and sort of how they grew up because it gives people context into the way that your life has been shaped before we know you as your public self. So at what age did you move to the U.S.? Uh, when I was nine. So that was 1994. That must have been culture shock for you or no? Incredible culture shock because coming from Nigeria where everybody looks like me, you know, everybody's black, uh, where for me, I was never the new girl anywhere. It was cold here when we came because we came to Chicago. Yeah. Everything about it was a culture shock. Everything about it. It was a classic fish out of the water. Like I showed up being nine. You don't want to be different from everybody else. Sure. You know, you don't want to stand out when you're little. That's not cool. So standing out in that way shocked my system a bit because I sounded different for the first time in my life. For the first time, people couldn't understand the way I spoke and people thought my name was strange. So absolutely, all of that felt like a shock. But you know what's funny about kids is kids are really adaptable. Yeah. You know, what for an adult might feel like trauma, for me, it might feel like trauma now looking back and being like, damn. <laughs> but I didn't even think about it as that. I was just like, okay, I got to do something different. So I learned to lose my accent by just listening to my classmates, by just being like, hmm, okay, all right, I can do that. And by high school, I had lost most of my accent. Most of the thing that was a telltale sign that I was the new girl was gone. How do you feel about that as an adult today? Do you wish that you still did that or do you wish you still had your accent? Because I feel like, you know, I grew up with Donna Karen and she was a huge proponent of cultural preservation, right? So yes. I think accents are so beautiful. Well, what's interesting is it's not like I lost my accent completely and couldn't reach it. Yeah. It's that my organic way of talking changed. Yeah. But I can still do my accent anytime I want. I still have, if I'm around a whole bunch of Nigerians, my accent comes back like that. If I'm around my friends. I'm happy because I love that. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Nigerian parents sound a little bit like Jewish parents. Absolutely. I've heard that they give their kids three options as careers, probably like lawyer, doctor, engineer. Like it's Absolutely. very focused. Yes. So what did your parents hope you would become? And what do they think about your remarkable career now? So 
I thought I was going to be a doctor. I was told I was going to be a doctor because they were like, oh my God, you're so smart. You're going to be a doctor. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. I want to help people in the world. <laughs> I took that dream on. And it was one of those things that I actually really did think I was going to do. So college is where that dream ended spectacularly because my <laughs> major was psychology pre-med. So I took chemistry 101 my first semester. Listen, the first D of my academic career, my first and last D. Chemistry is a struggle. Chemistry is where dreams go to die. Like I actually made effort and tried. And when I got that D, I was like, you know, I don't even like hospitals. I don't think I want to be a doctor anymore. I like instantly deaded the dream. You know how oftentimes people tell us like, never quit? Yeah. No, no. Sometimes you should absolutely quit. I'd be the worst doctor ever in life. I would hate my life. Oh my God. I think some failures were meant to happen. You should absolutely quit sometimes. If it's not meant for you, pivot, go different. 100%. By the way, we have that in common. I was neurobiology and physiology pre-med. And I also dropped it in college my junior year. And I told my parents I was quitting. And they were like, what the hell are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. It's fine. I'm going to work in fashion. (laughs) You went all the way left. You were like, yeah, I'm going to drop neuroscience. I'm going to fashion. Your parents must have been like, have we failed her? (laughs) They were 100% like, Okay, we we have failed, 100%. <laughs> um, so you started your career, though, in marketing, right? Yeah. So I started blogging in college, but I think my sophomore year, I ended up having a summer internship doing marketing for a nonprofit, and I fell in love with marketing. I was like, oh, this is me. Like, telling people about things I love, telling stories about the things I, I'm a fan of, I could do this. I love doing this. But I didn't put a name to it. I just like, this is really cool. But I didn't realize that I actually was marketing every day. You know, at that point, it was 2004. Facebook had started. I went to a Big Ten, the University of Illinois. Okay. And so Harvard got Facebook first because Mark Zuckerberg. Then he opened it up to Ivy Leagues. The next people that he opened it up to were Big Tens. I went to college with somebody who ended up being one of the first people on Facebook. I think she's literally person 100. My friend Maya. She randomly was like, have you heard about this thing called the Facebook? And I was like, hmm. The Facebook? The The Facebook. Facebook, Okay. And she was like, ooh, join it. And i that's how I joined Facebook. And that was July 2004, five months after Facebook started. Wow. So just, and then I started my blog. So I would like go on the Facebook and I'd be like, hey, new post on my web blog. Because web blogs was it was called back then. And that's how people started reading more of what I read. And what I wrote. And then when I graduated from college in 2006, I actually deleted my college blog. I was like, you know, I've leveled up. You know, I don't have undergrad anymore to use as material. So instead of talking about my life, I'm just going to talk about the world. So I see it. So that's when I started awesomelylovey.com. And the work that I've been doing in my internships, doing marketing on Facebook, just telling random people what I was up to for no reason, it kind of came together. It came together. And I realized I was like, this is part of my gift is telling people what I love to do and what I'm up to. And then merging it with the blog. So I ended up getting a full-time job as a marketing coordinator for a nonprofit when I graduated. And I loved it. Literally, I was a person who was introducing the organization to Facebook and how to use social media to talk about the work they're up to. It was such a natural and organic thing. I'd go to work from nine to five, and then I'd blog when I come home. The blog ended up getting an award the first time in 2009. I mean, listen, I remember, I mean, those early days of... First of all, when we were all back on, you know, on Twitter, yes. awesomely lovey, yes, the live tweeting scandal. Yes. I mean, it was like those were the days. And I do have to tell you, 
the way that you write, and for people who are listening, if you have not picked up Lovey's first book or seen her blog, you need to pick up not just the new book, but also the first book. And you need to absorb the whole thing because the way that you write, people just can't get enough of it because you say what people are thinking and don't want to say. And I think that is the gift that you were obviously born with and that has continued because normally when I speak to especially writers, like you always say like, well, how has your voice changed over the years? Like your voice has not changed. You are the same. (laughs) You are consistent. Look, consistency is key. And thank you for reflecting that to me because I think that's why my blog took off even when I was still thinking it was just a cute hobby is that people felt like I put voice to what they were thinking or I put voice to what they didn't know how to even think about, right? Like I think some of the best things that people say to me is like, they read my work and they feel like they're talking to their best friend. And for me, that's a high compliment because it means that like, I'm not just talking at you, right? We're having a conversation, even if it's one-sided, right? Oftentimes people are like, I reply to your blog post as if I'm actually talking to you. And I think that is something that I'm really proud of is just knowing that my voice and my work speaks to who I am authentically online, offline, on the podcast, in the book. I want to always be the person who is true to who she says she is. But I also think in the process of doing all of that, which you totally deliver on, it's educational for so many, Mm. right? So you're raising awareness for a lot of different things. And I'm just curious at the moment, what are you most passionate about raising awareness for? I mean, candidly, my book. (laughs) You know why? It's actually really something that I'm passionate about is because, so one thing I realized about my career and when people try to put me in the boxes and even back in the day, I actually couldn't figure out what box I fit into. You know, in blogosphere, you had your fashion bloggers, you had your style bloggers, you had your gossip bloggers, you had, you know, tech bloggers. And I remember back then I used to be like, I don't fit into any of that because I talk about all of that. So where am I? And it's because I've never really let myself just be one topic. I was never the person whose blog was one topic. The tone was always the same, right? Sure. And in different years, I'm passionate about different things. And I know right now what I'm really passionate about talking about is having the audacity to want to live a life that might feel too big for us. And that's why I'm so passionate about this book that I wrote. Because do you remember back when we used to be on Twitter all day, every day, just yeah. recapping things and you're DKNY PR girl, which literally like, I'm like, yo, you're like OG. Okay. You're an OG <laughs> in this game and seeing how so many people have evolved. So much of our lives have changed from back when we used to play on Twitter for seven hours a day. Yeah. And seven is an understatement, but sure. Seven is probably an understatement. Like we used to be on there, like Twitter was paying us to, to tweet. <laughs> totally. <laughs> So like we'd be on there all days, but we made so many good connections. Totally. Such dope connections. But I think about who we were back then and how we could not have imagined what our lives look like now. Like we could not have just when we were playing on the internet and with no real strategy of where we wanted to take it. Right. And this book, I actually tell the story of how my life changed the year that I got my first book deal. That year was huge because that was before everybody that you follow on Twitter had a book deal. That was before all of us had like names and platforms that were considered big, right? We, we knew each other, right? We had some following, 
But nobody really took us that serious, to be quite honest. So my life changed that year because I realized that I had spent so much time being afraid of naming and claiming myself. I had spent so much time being afraid of calling myself a writer because I didn't fit into the box of the writers that I saw, like the Toni Morrisons, right? I was afraid of what it meant to actually decide I'm going to run my own company. So for a long time, I just said, I just had a blog. I didn't call it a platform, right? And that year I turned 30 and I decided that I was going to start doing the things that scared me. I was going to start actually running towards it as opposed to running away from it. That year I ended up getting my book deal for I'm Judging You. That year I ended up skydiving. That year I ended up going to seven countries solo. Things that I had never done before. Things that were just like, what? Completely out of my usual safe I'm just going to stay on the ground. I'm going to just write on Twitter. I'm just going to, you know, be this person who travels with her friends. Go by myself. That's crazy. But I remember like that commitment to actively do what scared me changed my life, changed my life. That's why I was like, I got to write this book because my TED talk that now has 5 million views. I said no to it twice because I was afraid that I wasn't ready for the TED state. And when that TED talk dropped and got a million views in one month, the first month, it got reinforced to me again. I was like, remember that lesson you learned in 2015 about doing the things that scare you? Yeah, this is proof of what happens when you actually keep doing that. So I wrote this book because I was like, yo, this is the book that I needed in all those times of uncertainty. You know, this is the book that I needed when I was like, I'm not ready for TED. I might bomb. I'm afraid of that. This is the book that I needed when I didn't want to call myself a writer because I didn't see anybody who was writing in the way that I did. So that's why I'm passionate about it because I am a testament of what happens when life ends up being bigger than anything you ever thought. So I have so many responses to this, but I just (laughs) want to first start with, you know, the name of the book is Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. Yeah. And I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. Like I said no to my book deal too, Mm. twice. So I had the same thing. Like I was like, what if no one reads it? What if it's horrible? What if I have nothing to say? So I'm so on the same page with you. But I guess I would love to hear some of the ways that you coached yourself or if you were coached by somebody else or like what are the first steps? Because obviously, you know, not everyone gets approached to do like a TED Talk on a daily basis. But People struggle with like getting up in an office and presenting to a room of people, right? So like for the normal person who's just struggling with even taking that next step to present for a team meeting or, you know, show up at a conference and get on stage or even just in a one-to-one scenario, what are some of the tips of facing that fear? Because it can be so crippling. Yeah. I mean, this was a topic that I really wanted to tackle because you know what happens with fear is we end up thinking we're weak because we're afraid, right? Like the world has tricked us into thinking you being afraid, something is wrong with you. Like there's a chip missing. You're not brave. And But here's the thing though. You can't be brave and you can't be courageous without being afraid first. If it was easy, if there's no fear involved, that wasn't braveness. That was something to do. And The first step of conquering it is realizing that you're not alone in it. I think oftentimes the things that we battle with are big and feel really big because we think we're the only ones battling it. 
So I want people to know, first of all, you're not the only one who's, who's afraid. And those of us who show up in the world in our red lipsticks all the time, all really bold, we show up, we're opinionated. People assume that we're no longer afraid of anything, right? People yeah. assume that, of course, it's not a problem. They've been doing this. You know, people who speak out loud and who've made a career out of culture criticism or, you know, being really thoughtful thinkers and being thought leaders in general, people think we're no longer afraid. But I'm like, let me make it clear. Fear is not extraordinary to you. And that's okay. We're all feeling it. We got to acknowledge it first. When you acknowledge it, I always tell people to figure out the thing that they're afraid of. What is the worst case scenario? Put it on paper. I actually have a truth-telling guide that people can download called bethedomino.com that walks you through this because I want you to think about what is the thing that you're actually afraid of? My therapist made me claim it and name it. Whatever the situation is, let's say you're in a meeting and somebody gives a terrible idea because you know that happens a lot in meetings (laughs) and you know it's bad and you're afraid of challenging it. What are you actually afraid of? All right, let's do worst case scenario. If the worst case apocalyptic scenario of you speaking up in this meeting is that you will get fired, will you become homeless when you get fired? Let's say worst case apocalypse is me challenging this idea in this meeting will absolutely get me fired. What actually then happens if you do get fired? Do you have a savings account? A lot of us are operating with a lot more power and privilege than we think. You're not going to go homeless most of the time. Some of Americans will because living paycheck to paycheck. But those people's worst case scenario means they should not ever be the ones putting themselves on the line at all. Somebody else at the table does not have that as a worst case scenario. That person should speak up. But oftentimes we are thinking about the worst case scenario and we will opt out of the best case scenario because of, right? So let's say you're like, I'm afraid of asking my boss for a raise because my boss might say no. Okay. If the worst case scenario in that case is your boss will say no, what do you lose? But if the best case scenario is your boss might say yes and you get a $30,000 raise, which will allow you to be in a financially better position that allows your family to be better off, So you then don't ask for the raise because you're afraid of the worst case scenario where you lose nothing. So then you opt out of the best case scenario where you could gain so much more. We just have to get practical with fear, get real logical with it. Fear is emotion, but take the emotion out of it and just ask yourself, what is real? What can actually happen from this thing that you're afraid of? And can you deal and can you still function and move forward if that worst case scenario does happen? That is so brilliant. I mean... You need to put that on some sort of like big billboard somewhere with your book. But that is amazingly tactical advice that anyone who's listening can take and apply immediately, which is one of the things that I really strive for on this podcast, because I think a lot of times you listen to really successful people and you're like, that's great, but I'm not building, you know, a company and I'm not going to be the CEO and, and that's not the stage I'm at. But what you're saying is so actionable right now. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your thought leadership. And Mm. I know that you have done a lot of different talks and specifically from a corporate perspective. I know you have a lot of tips as far as like when and how should a company stand up Mm. and that filter of understanding, like, is it authentic? Is it not? So can you speak a little to that? Yeah, I think we are living in a time when the professional is now personal. The political is absolutely personal. And where before companies could just be 
faceless entity who had these neutral thoughts or no thoughts at all. Now people are asking companies to take a stand about what's happening in the world because you cannot exist in the world and have zero opinions, even as an entity, right? What you represent, the people who work at your company, what do they find important? How do they feel seen? How companies and when companies should speak up? It's not a science, it's an art. But I think what's most important is that companies need to move and speak up when it's real, when it's authentic. What we have found is a lot of performative activism with companies, a lot of Mm -hmm. performative statements that just don't mean nothing. The black square that happened, that I was just like, all these companies doing black squares, but I have all these unequal pay practices and and internally their company culture is toxic to any marginalized population. So I think companies need to realize that social justice is not just being kind to how you're showing up on social media. And social justice is absolutely a business need because what we're finding is companies that are prioritizing diversity of thought, diversity in background, diversity in education and experience end up profiting more. They've done research about it over and over again. So, you know, I know business is all about profit. Well, being diverse is profitable. So I think companies just need to be real with themselves. Like if you're going to make a statement about how you support Black Lives Matter or how you are a company that values diversity in a world that looks true, you have to now look at your board and be like, eek, our board has (laughs) nine white men. At that case, you have to understand that the company has failed somewhere. And it's not tokenism. It's not asking for quotas because there are so many qualified people who are not white and who are not male. So many. Amen. Right? So it's actually laziness when companies don't realize that they have a board that is monochromatic where you go on their page and you're like, it's the same person nine times. That's crazy. (laughs) Or an executive team where all of them came from Ivy Leagues, right? I just think it's time to start making real moves. Don't say something to be polite. I would rather people are kind and they are nice. I say the difference between kindness and niceness is niceness is to tell you, hey, it's raining today. Kindness is to say, hey, do you have an umbrella? Right? We're so focused on niceness, especially for companies. They're like, what? We, we made a great statement. Yeah, but internally, what are your company policies? How are you welcoming people who have diversity of thought? How are you making sure that people feel heard if they're not even at the very, very top? All of that matters. So well said. Let's shift a little bit to community building. I think that it's one of your most powerful weapons of choice. And I want to first know, what's your favorite way to engage with your community? Mm. So, man, my audience is awesome. I know. I always say that half the joy of reading my posts or my social media pieces are for me, the other half is the comments. Like, my audience is hysterical. They're so thoughtful, so funny, so timely, and just such good human beings, like people who I would love to hang out with. So, that's yeah. why I started Love Nation, uh, my own platform, because, you know, social media can get real toxic real quick. You think? It's a dumpster fire (laughs) constantly. So I was like, you know what? I want to create a safe space in the dumpster fire world. And in Love Nation, like 
I'll even tell you, I started Love Nation April 2019 and people joined and there's somebody in there who every single day, her name is Tiffany. She goes in there and starts every morning with an affirmation. We never asked her to. She just started doing it as like a form of service to everybody. And I was just like, this is the spirit. I had somebody before COVID, somebody in Love Nation was like, hey, I'm going to Disney World for the first time. Any tips? Well, one of the people in Love Nation was like, oh, I work at Disney World. I can give you a tour the whole day. And they end up sending a picture to the whole network of being like, we had such an amazing time. And they call each other the love cousins because they feel like they're play cousins from all over the world. And for me, that's where I love to engage the most because it's just so pure. It's what happens. Like, it gives me faith that humans are not all trash, right? <laughs> like, there's no hate in there. It's moderated. And we've never even had to moderate a hateful comment. In two years of running this social platform that has 13,000 people in it, we've never had to delete a comment because it was hateful. So, yeah. So, going back to the leader of the pack, which is you, what do you think? The secret is as far as your leadership of the community that makes that be the result. I think intentionality and actually speaking out loud what I want the space to be. From the start of Love Nation, I declared this is a space that I want people to be able to escape to. I want us to show the best of ourselves in here. I want us to be a support system. I want this to be a place where you would want to live. And from jump, people understood that intention. So not being shy about saying what we actually want, what we expect of people, I realized that as the leader of Love Nation, my energy will be replicated. I have to model who I want people to be. And that's who I am just in general. Like I want my platforms, my work to always model what I want to see from people in terms of my obligation to people as a community, my obligation as a person me drawing boundaries, all of that is important. So yeah, I led Love Nation with that idea in mind that they will replicate the energy that I bring into the space. And just like even on Facebook, even on my Facebook page, which I've had since 2006, I think, my fan page, that page has 330,000 people in it. And there's the only times I have to delete comments are when a post is shared to like a troll page and it's overrun by those people's fans. But by the time I even get there, my audience has already handled whoever it was because they're also fiercely protective of the space because they know what I represent. They know what I believe and they know how I approach the world. So they're fiercely protective of it. And it's really something that I'm deeply proud of because people say this all the time and say like, I love reading your comments because your audience is so funny. And I'm like, yes. And there are some pages who I love their content, but I can't visit because their audience is toxic. And I'm always like, part of the reason is because they've been given permission to be toxic. People yeah. know if you bring toxicity to my platforms, I have no problem deleting, blocking, reporting a spam. My platforms are not democracies. They are dictatorships led by me. So I don't know if you listened to Stacey London's episode, I'll leave your mark, but she quoted you and she was like, lovey says social media is a dictatorship. <laughs> I was like, yes. You know what? Freaking brilliant. It's brilliant. Yes. So, you know, it's funny. I just connected the dots with something. I don't even know if you realize this, but in 2016, in your New York Times feature, 
You said people are prospering from being unapologetically offensive, trite, and stupid. And we are tweeting ourselves into high blood pressure and ulcers trying to tell them to do better. Being a pompous nut biscuit is now a publicity <laughs> strategy. And I don't know what we can do to end the madness. You ended the madness by creating Love Nation. <laughs> I love that. No, I, I like to create spaces and work that I want to consume. Seriously. Like yeah. the books that I write, the podcasts that I create, the platforms that I have, it's literally like, I want this thing to exist. So you know what? I'm a creative then. That's how I approach my life and my work. Because if I need the place, if I need that book, then somebody else needs it too. And it's not led me wrong yet. So as a professional shade thrower, self-proclaimed, <laughs> yes. have you ever gotten yourself into like seriously hot water where you're like, oh, why did I say that? Oh, absolutely. I actually dedicated a whole chapter in my book to it, to my biggest Fail. There's a chapter in my book called Fail Loudly. And I want people to read that chapter for this information. But absolutely, I've gotten myself in high trouble. Being a thought leader and being a opinionated person in this world and being somebody who wants to do something of note, it's one of those foregone conclusions. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen, right? For all of us. And I think that's also some the reason why a lot of people are afraid of speaking up, of having prominence, because there is the price you pay which is that your mistakes are also now louder or your moments where you're not at your best are also now louder. So it's up to us to really understand that like it's an occupational hazard. It really is. Like you can be your most thoughtful self and still run afoul of somebody, right? And you can still face plant. And I'm just glad that I know that in those moments, my job is not to just shut up and disappear and go become a librarian in Idaho. Because look, it's tempting when you fall into like a Twitter firestorm, it's tempting to be like, you know what? I'm just going to collect my ball. I'm going to go home. I'm going to just like become a, a tutor for second graders as a life. Okay. That's easier and, and less Stress. obtrusive to my whole self-esteem. Yes. But it's an occupational hazard. It's one of those things where I think what's important is that you grow from it and realize that every fail you have is only a fail if you didn't learn anything, if it didn't make you better in some way. So all my public face plants have made me really a better writer, a better leader, a better thinker, a more thoughtful person, because usually it's from a blind spot that I have. And we are all learning out loud all the time. That's the difference between those of us with massive platforms and those without is that at one point we were the underdogs. Our 2012 tweetings, our 2008 tweeting, we were the underdogs. Back then we were the ones who were throwing shots at somebody. But then you become Goliath, right? When you're no longer David and you become Goliath, you got to move a little bit different. You got to be more responsible. Like your words travel faster and they go further. So you just have to move different and know. And that's what all my public fails teach me. I wonder your thoughts on cancel culture, because I do think, and I see it from a lot of reporter friends, I'm not even going to name them because it's not important who they are, but the cancel culture really diminishes the voice of writers, right? Because every time a major reporter publishes something that someone doesn't want to hear, there's a huge backlash. So what advice would you give to people who want to live loudly, who want to take a stand, but don't have the strength and the courage to like face the backlash of it because you have to have a stomach for that. <sighs> yeah, that phrase cancel culture, it's interesting because what I find is that 
in the moments of major backlash, the people who suffer the most are Black women. There's a thousand times when I've seen journalists write something that was not thoughtful, was not from a good place, and people, you know, had something to say about them on Twitter, but they kept their jobs. So what was canceled, right? I've seen, though, moments where Black women have said something people didn't like and had to go into hiding because their lives were threatened by it. So the conversation around cancel culture also has to get really real because we need to get real about who gets affected. Even when we think about comedians who are accused of sexual assault, who people run and talk about, two years later, they'll have a new movie out and everyone acts like nothing happened. So I think it really is a conversation that needs to become who really actually does get canceled, right? If we're going to use that phrase, who does it actually really hurt when people of power still retain their power after the critiques. You raise a brilliant point, and I think you should write an article about this and dig into it because it, you know what? You're 100% right. And the thing about it is, again, because we live in a world where, you know, we're just onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, people forget. Yeah. They have a moment, they forget, and then there's this like free pass situation. Yeah. So I think it's very, very valid and really important to dig into. Talk to me about just your passion for infusing humor in everything you do. You know, I think it's like one of those things that I don't even have a choice <laughs> because humor is such a big way and big part of how I communicate. It's such a big part of how I move through the world. It's such a big part of my culture. It's a big deal for me to be able to make people laugh because humor is like the great equalizer. I find that when you can make people laugh, you pull their defenses down. And when their defenses are down, they're more willing to listen. But it wasn't anything that I did with strategy. So me and my friends have been goofy. I just remember for a long time. And I just remember we've been in high school making fun of each other for lunch just because. And like cracking up or we'll go into a store and we'll laugh at the most ridiculous things we find and how we just operate with each other. And I think especially for black people, humor is a big part of just our culture and how we move through the world. So when I started writing my blog, I was just writing with the same way I was speaking and people found it funny. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I remember when my blog won the best humor award in 2009 in the Black Web Blog Awards. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Because it was such an affirmation of this thing that I wasn't necessarily doing on purpose. Yeah. I can't remove the humor from my work because that's just who I am. And my work is a reflection of my personhood. But it comes in handy. It comes in handy. And I love that people are like, yo, you make me laugh. I love that people are like, I know I can come on your website. And even if you're talking about something serious, you still made me chuckle in the middle of it, which I don't know how. So yeah, it's such a big part of what I do. It's a gift. So- Obviously, this is your second book. When you were done writing this book, is there something that surprised you about you? Like, is there something that you learned from just sort of putting all of these thoughts on paper and going through sort of the trip down memory lane of facing your fears and understanding and sort of dissecting it that made you think like, wow, that was like even a great cathartic experience for me. Writing this book felt like, an exercise in being who I am, 
even when it's tough. Like, I feel like my book writing process for this book, especially was very much like a, well, you said you were going to do this challenge. Let's see if you can, because I had to write this book when the world shut down from COVID. Like I'm here I am writing a book about fighting your fear at a time when the world's as scary as it's ever been. It was like God in the universe was like, all right, let's see if you can actually be this woman of your word. How do you fight your fear right now when you're scared? But you know what's funny is I felt convicted to write the book. So when I finished the book, I remember putting the last period on it and being like, I just wrote the best thing I've ever written. Oh, I get chills. I literally had such clarity and confidence about it because as I was writing the book, there were certain moments where I was putting certain words on paper and I was like, holy shit, this is really going to free somebody because me writing it just freed me a little bit. So yeah, the realization that I'm usually asked to be who I say I am in public and in private, and I have what I need to rise to the challenge. So well said. I have chills. I really do. It's amazing. What's next on your bucket list, Lovey? Got a lot going on Ooh. over there in the Lovey world. What's a dream project? Let's like put it out into the world. Self-fulfill that prophecy. You know, my book is dedicated to my grandmother. Like I tell the story of my grandma throughout the book because I, I talk about how she's my favorite professional troublemaker and the person who I watched growing up, the person who really kind of taught me what it's like to be this woman be this fierce woman who is still afraid, but moves forward anyway. Honestly, my dream project would be something that puts her in front of people in a big way. And I think this is why this book is so passionate to me. I'm almost like, this is the precursor to whatever that dream project is. Like I want, my grandmother died 10 years ago. It's interesting that this book is coming out almost exactly 10 years to her passing. So it almost feels like a tribute to her in that way too. Wow. So maybe this is the dream project because- now, hopefully, millions of people get to know her name. Her name was Fumulayo following. And that woman would have loved this moment, right? Like, my grandmother was not a shy person. So the fact that her granddaughter is writing a book that's going to be read by millions of people, which I'm claiming it, okay? Claim it. And her name, it. her name is on my back cover. Her name is throughout the book. The book is dedicated to her. There's four pictures of her in this book. I think for me... I haven't even thought about anything beyond what is the dream project besides, because I think this book has been my dream project. That's so wonderful. And I, I love that because I also had a grandmother that was extremely influential in my life. And to be able to put it in writing and share that story with so many people is such a luxury. And yeah. I think also shows the kind of granddaughter you were too, which is also mm -hmm. like really touching. Last question, which is how I always end it. How do you want to leave your mark? What do you want to be remembered for? Mm, I love this question. I want to be remembered for bringing people joy, for making them think critically, and hopefully compelling them to make this world better than they found it. Like I want to be remembered for my humor, for my heart, and for my action. Beautiful. Yeah. I think that's a great, great goal. And you're already well on your way for that. Lovey, this was awesome. It was so great to hear your story. There's something very like warm and cozy when I think about you and I think about all the words that I have read that you have written. So thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. It really makes 
a difference to me. And it really matters when people are like, we want to share space with you. We want to hear from you. So I am so grateful to you. I love watching you soar also. Like, again, like I remember following you when you were still DKOY PR girl, which was crazy because I was like, yo, this is wild. So watching just everything that you've done since, it's inspiring. And I'm I'm a fan. I'm always rooting for you. So thank you. Thanks, lovey. Back at you. Back at you. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.